As we continue to worship, I invite you to join me in prayer. Surprising God, you have an uncomfortable habit of showing up where we least expect you. In a burning bush, in the face of an enemy, in a livestock feed trough, on a rough wooden cross. Jesus, you call to us from that cross, come and follow me. We are overcome by evil, yet you tell us to overcome evil with good. Jesus, you are the savior of the world, yet your crucifixion tells the story of a man who would not save himself from death. We desperately want to save our own lives. We want to follow you. We also want it to be easy. Time and again, our desire to follow is thwarted by our sloth, our laziness, our own tendency for self-preservation, our own desire for the quick path. Your very life shows us that to follow you is costly, but more than worth it. God, your truest, most core nature is shown clearly when you turn your face to Jerusalem to be mocked and gruesomely killed. You sought out your own sacrifice. We seek notice. We seek accolades. We seek to raise ourselves up in the eyes of others, and we admit that we are at times willing to do evil to get those things. As your followers, we must refuse any opportunity or temptation that dangers our integrity, our reputation, and most importantly, our eternal life with you. It is simply not worth it. You alone are worth it. You lay before us a different path through life. God of paradox, help us understand how to lose our lives in order to save them. You are worth everything. You want us to desire you. You love us beyond any fleeting and faint substitutes for your real mercy, grace, care, and love. Teach us to let go of ourselves and everything in this world that pulls us away from you. We find ourselves surprised by the limitless and inexplicable nature of your true love, O oh God. We rejoice to stand together in this place on holy ground because you have met us here. And so we come to you, Lord of Hope, today. We have followed many paths, but the one that is hope leads to this door. Forgive our sins and make us new. Call each of us into lives of service and equip us for the service and ministry and place us on pathways of peace. Guide our steps, guard our lives, that we may serve you more effectively in this broken world. Good Jesus, our God and our all, be all to us, that we may be all yours and all your will ours. Make us cheerful under every cross for the love of your cross. Take from us all which displeases you or hinders your love in us that we may deeply, deeply love you. 
Meet us with your love, that we may be all love, and with our whole being, love you. Good Jesus, who gave yourself for the world, give us the fullness of your love, that for all of your love, with all of your love, the world may love you. Amen.
Wow. That's not a biblical word. It's, it should be. Wow. Something important may be happening today. The Spirit is moving. And now, holding us close to these words of Scripture, calling us to listen deeply to what it is God will say to us today. Be listening to the words in Matthew chapter 16. We'll be reading verses 24 through 28. Excuse me, uh, 24 uh, through 26. And as we do, um, I want you to listen for precisely that. What might God be saying to me today? As we gather here as a community of believers, listening together and individually for the voice of Jesus, who calls us to deny, to raise, and to follow. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. Now, as we begin, we begin with a few epitaphs. I'll confess, this is uh, one of the weeks in preparation where I longed to be able to correspond with Doug Wheeler. Uh, Doug and I had an ongoing sort of, well, we had all sorts of ongoing text exchanges, but, but he loved to share with me what he found to be particularly clever or witty epitaphs and obituaries. It seems like grim material, but he loved a clever obituary. He loved a clever epitaph. And epitaphs really are quite powerful when you think about it, because what is said there very often when we die becomes a window at least into our values or our priorities or what we want to be remembered for. And so every once in a while there's an epitaph that can tell us much. Ludolf van Kulen is a name I did not know, but for you mathematicians out there, you may recognize the name. He spent most of his life calculating the numerical value of the constant pi. And so in 1596, he published pi out, he kind of hand calculated out to 20 decimal values. And then I think just to sort of flex on all of the other mathematicians out there, he later expanded it to 35 decimals. So we should not be surprised that he wanted the following on his epitaph. Ludolf van Kulen, 3.14159265358979323842783279530. A value of pi that has no real use except to the mathematician. But he wanted that achievement to be known for all posterity. Martin Luther King, on his epitaph, simply offers the following words, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. 
Benjamin Franklin in one of his journals as he speculated on what his epitaph might be connected back to his early roots in printing. The body of B. Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out, stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms. Bad. Despite all those achievements, though, he looked back at his early roots. He wanted us to know first and foremost that he was a printer and that he was very, very human. In much the same way, Thomas Jefferson's is sort of an enigma because this president of the United States on his epitaph simply declares Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence, the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. Go Hoops. And so, in a sense, epitaphs can tell us quite a bit about what was important to a person. We struggle sometimes to identify then how we might write an epitaph for Jesus. There was no epitaph written on the stone for Jesus except for an imperial Roman seal. And that wasn't because he was such a good citizen. It was instead of a way for Rome to say, we killed him dead, and here he'll stay dead. The closest we can come to an epitaph for Jesus, some summary of his life, is actually, I think, a symbol rather than a string of words. That symbol, of course, is the cross. And if there's one thing that we, as Christians, rally around here in church, it is the cross. We have an abundance of songs that we sing about the cross. The old rugged cross, alas, and did my Savior bleed. Amazing grace, and can it be? Are you washed in the blood? All about the cross. There's an old hymn. It's still in our hymnals. It's number 247, if you want to look it up. And it sings, in the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time. Maybe you know it. But that notion of a cross as something in which we would glory, something towering over all of the aches and pains and hurts and catastrophes of our time, well, that means something. And for each of us, it might have found resonance at a particular point in time. For many of us in America, one of the places where that came into crystal clear focus was in the days after September 11, 2001. You probably remember as the smoke cleared and as they began to move from you know, rescue to recovery, there remained there in the wreckage an iron girder cross. The cross is a great big thing. It was one of the most frequently photographed images of the entire area around Ground Zero. I think because it spoke really directly to our need for something to look to when life has gone beyond our control, when circumstances have begun to move past all of our understanding. 
that cross that was held together, and it's now part of the 9-11 Museum in Manhattan. But for many people, that cross reminds us of bad and tragic things, difficult things. You see fields of crosses at Arlington National Cemetery, or if you ever have the chance to go to the cemeteries around Normandy, you see crosses, the occasional star of David, but not much more, remembering those who have fallen. More personally, more privately, sometimes as we drive down the highway, you might spy somewhere off in a ditch past a piece of guardrail that looks awfully new compared to everything else. There's a cross. Maybe around a particularly precarious bend in a country road, you'll see those same crosses reminding us that someone somewhere along the line is being remembered and not welcomed to the family dinner table. But we rarely think about crosses as symbols of hope, as symbols of life, certainly as a symbol that would in some way direct our daily business in the everyday. Even in Lower Manhattan, prior to September 11, 2001, no one would have thought to put a cross on top of the World Trade Center. A religious symbol like that, of course, probably would have relayed, you know, raised a pretty big uproar because of the separation of church and state and seeing a symbol of the cross just right there in the middle of our country's greatest symbol of economic power would not have made sense to a whole lot of people anyway. Why would you put a cross? What would it have to do with all the bond trading and all the high-octane business that happened there in the two towers? The editor of Time Magazine captured it really powerfully, provocatively even, in the special edition of Time after September 11th. He says, if you want to humble a nation, you attack its cathedrals. And those two towers, in many ways, were cathedrals of our commerce, of our economic stability and power and growth, a place to which we would look for security, for safety, for our upward mobility, for wealth, for life, and yet today, Jesus in Matthew 16 shows us a cross as the thing that we would cling to each and every day. And most of us looking around this room, I know that you are well-rooted in Christian faith. So you know the idea of taking up the cross is a very familiar one. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves how profoundly countercultural the idea of taking up a cross is in terms of the teaching of Jesus. It cuts against the grain of all of our expectations in terms of what people would associate the cross to be. But we need to be aware of how odd at odds we are with that familiar image, I think, for us to be thinking faithfully about what Jesus calls out of us today. Do we understand the daily reality of the cross in our lives? Or do we reserve the cross for those special occasions? Do we preserve them for our political fights? Do we reserve them as a memorial, dignifying the graves of those we have lost? Can the cross be more than that? In Lithuania, 
there's a hill that is full of crosses. And those crosses began to appear in the 19th century. It was the way local villagers would remember citizens who had been executed or in some way oppressed unto death by the czar. And one by one, those crosses would go up to remember those they had loved and who were lost. After the communist revolution, the Soviets, who then were now, uh, Lithuania was now a part, really resisted the presence of crosses as an atheist, communist regime. And so they would start taking them down. And once you know it, the crosses appeared again. More and more and more. What began as a memorial to the death of those who had died now became a living symbol of resistance and hope. And we sang about that today, and I hope you could hear the great uh, power of a statement where the cross is converted from a symbol that memorializes only our deaths to a defiant symbol against the way things are and a symbol of hope for our future. But it's hard to hold all of that intention. Paul, in the Bible, calls the cross foolishness. Billy Graham wrote about it this way. When Jesus said, if you are going to follow me, you have to take up a cross, it was the same as saying, come and bring your electric chair with you. Take up the gas chamber and follow me. You did not have a beautiful gold cross in mind, a cross on a church steeple or on the front door of the, of your, uh, the front of your Bible, Jesus had in mind a place of execution. And so this teaching of Jesus follows immediately after Peter makes a bold and faithful declaration about who Jesus is. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus tells his disciples in verse 20, don't tell anybody. He didn't want his identity as the Messiah to break out of that circle of friends just yet. And maybe it's because he knew they didn't understand all that would mean. Because in verse 21, it says that Jesus, from that time on, tells them all the grim sufferings that he would experience because of his identity as God's Messiah. Of course, they, like we, were very politically minded. They wanted to see this movement convert into real social change, real political change. They're talking about all of this in the context of being an occupied state of imperial Rome. Oh, Jesus, if you are God's Messiah, if you are God's anointed, won't you please lead the revolution that will overturn our oppressors? Peter certainly is anchored in some sort of thought like that because his ability to pivot between the poles of spiritual life and accolades is just mind-boggling. Let me tell you how Matthew tells it. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, that he must be killed. And on the third day, he raised to life. And Peter 
took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This would never happen to you. Jesus then turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, what I didn't read before was he said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Now he says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In only a few minutes, Peter went from being blessed Rocky to scandalous Satan. And that change in status happens when Peter, which is just rock, right? So I call him Rocky. That's what my New Testament professor taught me. He takes it on himself to instruct Jesus about a better theology. And so he rather conspicuously, I think, takes Jesus aside, away from the other disciples, the way one leader might consult with a with a subordinate, the way the president might take the chief of staff somewhere to the side and simply then tells him as a student instructing the teacher, you're wrong. And as he drapes his arm over Jesus' shoulder, pulls him away from the crowds, he sternly begins to rebuke Jesus. God forbid that this would happen to you. And that's when Jesus calls Peter Satan. But not only that, he calls him in Greek a scandalon, a scandal, which is the Greek word that means a rock over which somebody stumbles. He's still a rock now, but instead of being the rock upon which Jesus might build his church, with an attitude like that, with a perspective like that, people are just going to stumble over you. You've become the mighty foundation of the church to a trip hazard. And just to be sure that Peter and now the, all of us get the point, that there's a difference between useful in building and dangerous as a stumbling block, Jesus tells us, along with Peter, these famous words about the cross, if any would follow me. John Stott, great evangelical theologian, talks about the cross of Christ in his book, The Cross of Christ. And in one of the chapters, he describes the miserable conditions that millions of people live in in the shanty towns of Asia and in Africa and in Latin America and the fatherless of Brazil. And he imagines the story of a very poor Brazilian man living in those slums who climbs the 2,310 feet up to the mountain that has a colossal statue of Christ. It towers over Rio de Janeiro. I know you've seen the pictures, the Christ of Corcovado. And after that very difficult climb, that poor man finally reaches Jesus, and he says, I climbed up here to meet you, Christ, from the filthy and confined quarters down there to put before you, most respectfully, these considerations. There are 900,000 of us down there in the slums of that splendid city. And you, do you remain here in Corcovado, surrounded by divine glory? Go down there to the fatherless. Don't stay away from us. Live among us. Give us new faith in you and in our Father. Amen. That's the prayer of the poor man. And then Stott says, what would Christ say 
in response to a prayer like that? Would he not say, I did come down to live among you. I live among you still. And then he concludes, we have to learn to climb a hill called Calvary. And from that vantage ground, survey all of life's tragedies. The cross does not solve the problem of our suffering, but it supplies the essential perspective from which to look at it. Sometimes we picture God lounging, perhaps even dozing in some celestial deck chair with hungry, hungry millions starving to death. And it is this caricature of God that the cross smashes to smithereens. The cross, in our ability to let everyday life be shaped by that cross, is what creates the difference for us as Christians. But in so doing, that means that not even hell itself cannot touch us. But in order to be powerful like that, we have to do something that makes no sense. Turns out it's weakness and vulnerability that hell cannot attack. And that holy vulnerability, trusting God and being transparent and open to the life and the needs of this world, that is the gospel way of a suffering servant of a gentle love that the forces of hell, of hell just simply cannot exploit. And so to deny yourself doesn't mean simply to deny things. It means to give yourself wholly and completely to Christ. And even be willing to share in his shame, be willing to share in his death. To take up a cross does not mean to carry burdens or have problems. How many of us are dealing with, with, with something which, while significant, I had childhood asthma, that was not my cross to bear. To take up the cross means to identify with Jesus. In his rejection, in his shame, in his suffering, in his death. And Jesus tells us then that viewing life in the way that he viewed it will, of course, lead to a degree of that suffering, that if the cross and the faithfulness to Jesus who died on that cross is going to shape our everyday lives, then we are going to come into conflict with the prevailing norms of this world. There may be certain promotions you should not take or that you may not even be eligible to receive. There may be certain paths you will not walk there are things that you will not say. There are things you will not do because it is not the way of Jesus. Even though it may be expedient in this world, a person can gain the whole world, but still lose his soul, Jesus says. And in the end, when our lives are laid bare before Jesus, when he returns in glory, and is asking us to give an account of our lives, how we spent our time. It would be horrifying to discover that we gained a whole lot, but we forfeited what mattered most. There's nothing in this world that is rich enough to be able to buy your soul back. 
There's some things that come to us only because they come as gifts of grace. And life with God, that which nourishes and strengthens our souls, is a gift like that. It was purchased for us by Jesus on the cross. So I think the cross was the epitaph of Jesus. It wasn't the conclusion of God's work, of course. In his resurrection, that Roman seal was broken. And we discover that Jesus, in living and dying according to the way that God called him to live, raised him to new life. And that is a promise for our future, too. Remember that hill full of crosses, a sign of mourning and of death, transformed into a sign of resistance and hope. And every day, in every place, the cross is before us. And we wouldn't want it to be any other way. When we follow Jesus, when we deny ourselves, when we raise up our cross, the good news is that though the cross does mean weakness and vulnerability, and yes, even death, it does not mean the end. Thanks be to God. Amen. Mary Martha leads us now. It is a time for us to respond with open hands, with open hearts, to practice our generosity, and even more, to be generous with God, with our whole lives, however God is calling you to participate more fully as a disciple of Jesus, following him wherever he may move. Don't hold back, but in prayer now, Make yourself available and offer your life to God. <laughs>